Hello, welcome to a new podcast for The Lancet Neurology. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and today we're going to be discussing autoimmune encephalitis after herpes simplex encephalitis. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Professor Joseph Dalmo. Professor Dalmo, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, uh, thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Giuseppe Dalmau. Uh, I'm Professor Icria at Edivabs uh, Hospital Clinic, University of Barcelona, and I am a young professor of neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, I, w- I would like to thank uh, you and uh, Lance Neurology for the inv- invitation to participate in this podcast. Uh, before uh, Talking a little bit about my background, I must mention that I'm here in place of Dr. Thais Armangue, who is on maternity leave and should receive most of the credit for her remarkable job in designing and coordinating this study. I am a neuro-oncologist, and my involvement with clinical and basic research on autoimmune encephalitis derived from my work on paraneoplastic neurologic diseases. Uh, about 16 years ago, my interest expanded towards patients with encephalitis, uh, but uh, without cancer. By that, uh, we were consulted uh, for several uh, patients who had encephalitis of unclear cause, and most of them were very sick or had been in intensive care units for several weeks or months. Uh, these initial clinical consultations, along with a lab experience that gained from my previous work in paraneoplastic syndromes led to discover several autoimmune encephalitis. The best known is anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, and this was followed by a few more. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We're really happy to have you. Well, to kick off, uh, tell us a little bit about what autoimmune encephalitis after herpes simplex encephalitis is, and who's most commonly affected by this? Yes, the, the autoimmune encephalitis after herpes simplex encephalitis is an autoimmune encephalopathy that, that manifests a few weeks after the viral encephalitis and, and is likely mediated or initiated by this infection. Our study shows that 27% of patients with herpes simplex encephalitis develop a few weeks later the autoimmune encephalitis. These patients received a standard treatment for the herpes encephalitis with cyclovir, and after full or partial recovery from the viral infection, developed within a time frame of several weeks new neurological symptoms, including change of behavior, sometimes psychosis, seizures, decreased level of consciousness, abnormal movements, among others. When these collapsing symptoms manifested, the CSF of the patients was not longer positive uh, for herpes virus. Instead, it showed autoantibodies against neuronal antigens. These antibodies were also found in serum, although less consistently than in CSF. And our study shows that both uh, children and adults can be affected by this type of autoimmune encephalitis although the spectrum of symptoms varies according to the age of the patient. In your paper, then, you aimed to look at the incidence, the spectrum of symptoms, the risk factors, and the, and the prognosis of patients who, who developed autoimmune encephalitis after herpes simplex encephalitis. Tell us a little bit about how you investigated these aspects, and, and what did you find when you investigated them? We used two types of studies that were run in parallel. In the prospective observational part of the study, 
we included patients with herpes simplex encephalitis that were diagnosed in 19 secondary and tertiary centers in Spain. We call this group of patients cohort A. Clinical information from all these patients was obtained with structure questionnaires, phone calls. The MRI neuroimaging was centrally reviewed by us, and the serum and spinal fluid of the patients were also examined for autoantibodies in, in our lab. The clinical follow-up was obtained three weeks after onset of herpes simplex encephalitis, and at two, six, and 12 months. We studied another group of patients retrospectively, and we call this group cohort B. These patients were recruited by the time they developed the autoimmune encephalitis after herpes simplex encephalitis. Therefore, the only retrospective part of this second group was the information regarding the herpes simplex encephalitis, which happened a few weeks earlier. The rest of the clinical information for this call retrospective group was actually prospective, and their serum and CSF were also examined in our lab. So these are the two groups that were studied. And overall, 51 patients were included in the prospective cohort and 48 in the retrospective cohort. None of the patients of the prospective cohort had antibodies against neuronal surface antigens by the time they were diagnosed of herpes simplex and encephalitis. But 14, that is 27% of the prospective cohort, then developed autoimmune encephalitis. And by that time, all had antibodies against neuronal surface antigen. The, the main risk factor for autoimmune encephalitis was the detection of antibodies uh, to neuronal surface antigens at the three-week follow-up. So this is, the, this is the summary. But considering the 58 patients from both cohorts who developed autoimmune encephalitis, the patients that were older than four years frequently presented with prominent behavioral and psychiatric symptoms. The patients that were four years old or younger were more likely to have shorter intervals between the herpes encephalitis and the autoimmune encephalitis. They were more likely to have abnormal movements or what was called choreoatetosis, impaired consciousness. They were more likely to have NMDA receptor antibodies, and they have a worse outcome at one year follow-up. They had a worse uh, neurological status that was um, uh, assessed by the modified ranking scale, and they have more frequent seizures. So how can all of this help inform clinicians who see these patients? I think that the most important contribution in, of this study is in helping to clinically recognize the autoimmune encephalitis and the risk factor involved, which is the, the, the detection or the development of antibodies a few weeks after the herpes encephalitis. In children younger than four years, the disease can be easily recognized because most of these patients have this prominent abnormal movement. So you, you, can, you can spot the, the symptoms at the bedside very easily. But we believe that in all older children, the ones that are older than four years and, and adults, the, the disease is underdiagnosed because the predominant behavioral and cognitive changes 
are attributed to the previous viral infection. And in fact, they are caused by the autoimmune encephalitis. So in these in these older in these patients, um, the the clinical manifestations are not so obvious, and they are attributed to the viral infection that had in the past. Uh, then it's important an early diagnosis of the autoimmune encephalitis is important because patients, particularly the older children and adults, respond to immunotherapy. So what's next for for you and your team? What research do you do you think needs to be done next? And what are kind of some of the challenges going forward? Yes, well, the study opens many questions that should be addressed by prospective clinical trials and basic research. Uh, for example, I find um, fascinating that some patients developed neuronal autoantibodies but did not develop symptoms of autoimmune encephalitis. In these cases, the presence of the antibodies was transient, uh, they did not persist for as long as those of patients who develop symptoms. Uh, we don't know whether these patients are at risk to develop autoimmune encephalitis in the future. Our study suggests this possibility, but a longer follow-up is needed. Other future challenges are to determine, for example, the immunological mechanisms involved. For example, if T-cell mediated mechanisms are more important than the B-cell or antibody-mediated mechanisms, which are more relevant for the classical autoimmune encephalitis, but we don't know if in here the T-cell responses are probably more important or complement-mediated neuronal tissue damage. Other questions, whether anti-inflammatory or immunotherapy prophylaxis during herpes simplex encephalitis may prevent the development of autoimmune encephalitis. Additional questions, if there are predisposing genetic factors, why some patients develop this autoimmune encephalitis and not all the patients with herpes encephalitis, and whether if an early diagnosis and more prompt treatment also may improve the outcome. So these are important challenges for future studies. Well, Professor Dalmo, uh, we, we really appreciate it. It's a, it's a fascinating paper, and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much.